In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Please be seated. The great English writer of spirituality and devotion, Evelyn Underhill, has suggested that no Christian escapes a taste of the wilderness on the way to the promised land. No Christian escapes the wilderness on the way to the promised land. We all get a taste of the wilderness, I think, because we we make our way to the promised land um, as ourselves, not as holy people to start with, not as saints, not as superheroes, but as our own, broken, but trying to be our best selves. Along the way in the wilderness, we face temptations that are personal. In other words, it seems like we're most tempted by the things that are within our reach. If you think about it, the things that are way far away aren't very tempting at all. I'm not tempted to be an astronaut or a doctor. Those things don't tempt me in the least. But what tempts me are things with, with the right shift of resources or energy, things that might be mine. I'm not tempted to be a pro golf player. My golf game isn't very good. But if you catch me after an especially long week, when it feels like the building is falling down around me and no one seems to be returning calls or emails and there's not an electrician or a plumber to be had, and if you suggested that perhaps I make a bundle of money in advertising or public relations, that sounds tempting. Those are things I probably could do. I don't plan to do them. But given the right circumstances, the shift of things, they're conceivably within reach. What makes the temptations alluring for Jesus is precisely that they fall within the range of things he could have done. If he chooses, he can do them. We just heard how Jesus, immediately after his baptism, full of the Holy Spirit, proclaimed as God's Son, is then led into the wilderness for 40 days, and there he fasts. And because he is human as well as divine, fully human and fully divine, he gets hungry. He gets hungry just like we get hungry. The devil appears to him and says, If you are the Son of God, just turn these stones into bread. The devil has pretty good insight. He seems to know that if Jesus is really God's Son, Son of the one who created the universe, who parted the seas, who made manna fall in the desert out of the sky and enabled Jesus to be born to begin with, then just a simple little magic trick like turning rocks into bread should be no problem. Jesus doesn't fall for it, and so next the devil takes him to the highest pinnacle of the temple and taunts him with that psalm that promises safety of angels' wings. 
Again, it must have been tempting. Jesus could have done it right there and then and put the devil in his place, but he chose not to. Finally, the devil takes Jesus up to a high mountain and promises him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. There's just one little detail. Jesus needs to bow down and worship the devil. I could imagine the devil explaining this away and saying, Oh, Jesus, don't worry about it. It's just pro forma, really. It's just to fulfill the contract, show an allegiance. It's a symbolic act. It doesn't really mean anything. Don't overthink this. Again, it must have been tempting for Jesus. It must have even sounded somehow fitting if Jesus had been listening to his disciples who were constantly suggesting to Jesus that his should and could be a worldly kingdom, Jesus must have wondered. But again, Jesus quotes scripture back at the devil, and the devil goes away, goes away for now at least. It's because the Orthodox Christian understanding of Jesus is that he has two natures, one that's fully divine and one that's fully human, that somehow through the miracle of God, both natures are full and complete. Then Jesus is just as human as you and I. That's the part of Jesus I relate to. Because I think Jesus probably probably was tempted by a lot of things. Of course, we hear about it in the desert, but think about all the other times when Jesus must have been tempted to have an all-too-human response to those who were in front of him. Think of those times when he's confronted by the Pharisees and all their tedious and tiresome arguments over the jot and tittle of the law. Don't you think Jesus must have been tempted to just really let them have it? Just level them and make them weep with his argument. Or at least make the building fall down on them and be done with them. When people are always turning to Jesus and they want quick miracles, easy answers, and immediate healings, don't you think at some point along the way Jesus is tempted to respond with impatience or exhaustion or some other all-too-human way? And yet each time, in the face of any temptation, Jesus makes a choice, and he chooses God's way. That's what temptation does for each of us, I think. It presents us with a choice. We don't always see it. We don't always notice it. We don't always take the time to discern. But there's a choice. D.T. Niles was a 20th century Sri Lankan theologian, and he suggests that temptation really comes down to our making a choice between God with a big G and all the other little gods with little Gs. He explains the choice between God and every other God is a real choice. Both make promises, both demand loyalty, And it's possible to live by both. If there were no real alternative to God, then all humanity would choose God. God asks that we live by faith, 
that we be connected to him, that we be in relationship with him so that we can be alive with the spirit and the life force of God within us. Faith in God, any kind of faith, any level of faith, whether floundering faith or doubting faith or here today, gone tomorrow faith, it gives us the presence of God today. And we have what we need. Faith tomorrow will take care of tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day after that. Other gods promise for the future. They promise for a future they can't deliver. Or they promise immediate results right here and now, kind of like a spiritual scam of the day. Other gods promise that if we just make enough, just accumulate enough, just hoard enough, just plan our finances and our life and our time and on and on and on, fill in the blank, if we just get it right, then we'll always be happy. We'll be at peace. Things will be lovely. Each of the temptations the devil puts to Jesus has to do with something right there immediate to Jesus. You're hungry? Then let's eat. Let's get something. You're competent and you're smart? Well, you shouldn't let that talent go to waste. Go into something where you can control people and get your way and rise to the top. You should get what you deserve after all. And then the devil finally loses his own patience, I think, and gets a little sloppy and taunts Jesus. Why don't you jump off the pinnacle and put God to the test? Just test God and see if he comes through. Well, against all these temptations of the immediate, the present, the readily available, Jesus remains calm, composed. Jesus speaks out of a deep faith and experience in God. Jesus knows God, and Jesus knows God will provide him with whatever he needs when he needs it. He doesn't need to worry. Jesus knows that God's promise of the angel's care is not meant as an instant solution to a a random problem. Jesus knows that God is already using his abilities and talents in ways that are appropriate to God's unfolding will. Sometimes when we think of a little red man dancing around with a pitchfork and a tail, we can think that the devil is, is back in the past, far away from today. Whether we think of a literal embodiment of evil or not, I think we should make no mistake that the devil is alive and well. Perhaps we can remember one of those oldest and most powerful words for the devil Lucifer, coming from the Latin word for light. It's the great trick of the devil to pretend to be in the way of light, especially when we're in the dark, when we're in the shadows, when we're feeling dark. The devil shows up shining, brightly, glittering even. And we're blinded for a minute. We're drawn to that light for its brightness, for its seeming warmth. We, we want the light. We want the good. We want the happy, the comfortable, all that enriches and assures and enlivens. God calls us to look around the edges, to be careful. What is the source of the light? What is the intention of the light? 
Will the light last or is it just a flash? Is it just a reflection? Being fools, are we then cast into even, even deeper darkness? This is the stuff of temptation. It presents us always and everywhere with a choice between God and gods, between um, the true light and the false light made of bright, shiny things. This season of Lent invites us to notice, to take care, to look deeply, to, to develop our skills of discernment, of sorting out the difference between God with a big G and all the little gods with little Gs, between light that lasts everlasting and the shiny things that fade and dull. Some of us are reading the Archbishop of Canterbury's Lent book for this year, Dethroning Mammon. And the chapter we discussed this morning reminds us that what we see, we value. And so if our vision isn't quite right, our values are going to be off. If we go through life ignoring lots of things, lots of people, we won't see them and we won't value them. But if we stop and notice, our values change. Spiritual disciplines help us to do this. The the church reminded us on Wednesday and Ash Wednesday and all throughout this season of the, the classic spiritual disciplines such as spiritual reading or meditating on scripture, praying in a new way, saving money for a particular project or cause or or giving it away freely, fasting, whether that means giving up a particular food or drink or fasting in a more creative way, maybe avoiding waste or limiting the use of water or plastic or gasoline. Who knows what it might be for you? Almost anything can be turned into a spiritual discipline. It can be consecrated and handed to God for God to work with, to clarify and steady. It might be a daily walk or a time of reading or reading scripture, sitting still or writing in a journal or coming to church or praying with other people. Almost anything, if given over to God, if done with intention and mindfulness and willingness to be used by God, it can become a way to sharpen our insight, to clarify our vision, and to help us know when we're being tempted and to make better choices. Spiritual disciplines help us focus. They bring clarity. As we move through these 40 days of the season of Lent together, may many different Lenten disciplines inform us and shape us and clean us and prepare us for the resurrection of Christ within us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.